Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Bum, 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 bum. Did you wonder where I was? I'm two minutes late. Couldn't get my Wi-Fi working. Had a little power outage last night. Messed things up. But I'm good now. We're back. And that means it's time for a little thing you call simultaneous sip. I call it that too. And all it takes is a cup or a mug or a glass of tanker gels or sign a canteen jug or flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And join me now for the unparalleled pleasure, the dopamine hit of the day, the thing that makes everything better, including the damn pandemic. It's called the simultaneous sip, and it happens now. Go. Mm. Now, if you joined us last night... Um, I had a little technical difficulty. I was trying to bring on a special guest to talk about convalescent blood serum. And uh, as soon as he's uh, ready, we're going to try that again this morning. So I'll wait to uh, wait to see when Ian gets on. All right, let's tell him we're good now. Um, in the news... My favorite story is that uh, President Trump apparently wanted to go golfing this weekend, but he didn't want it to be the biggest story. So what do you do if you want to go golfing and you're the president and you don't want it to be the biggest story for three days? Well, on the way out the door to golf, what you do is you send a tweet that accuses Joe Scarborough of murder. Now, you have to appreciate how much fun that is. Now, of course, not for the family of the victim who died many years ago, but the fact that uh, Trump would accuse somebody of murder before he goes golfing is beautiful. So I see Ian has joined. So uh, let me just finish the story, then I'll, then I'll add him on. Uh, now, here's my take on that. Now, on one hand, it's completely outrageous and inappropriate that the president of the United States would accuse Joe Scarborough of murder when there's no indication that he actually murdered anybody. There was some young woman who hit her head and died in his office years ago. Now, that's all we know, and she had some health problem that suggests that she just passed out and hit her head. But the fact that the president would say that now, you say to yourself, well, that's all wrong. That is so wrong. That is wrong on a level that's deeper than any wrongness. Except, except, we are talking about Joe Scarborough, who did lie about the president in the worst possible way for years. I believe he accused the president of suggesting people should drink bleach. That never happened. <laughs> I think he suggested the president 
had called neo-Nazis in Charlottesville fine people. That never happened. So is it fundamentally different to accuse somebody of being pro-Nazi versus saying you murdered your girlfriend? They're not that different, really. Because once you've accepted that you can say absolutely anything in the political context, there's just no penalty. You can say absolutely anything. The president just took the rules and said, what are the rules? Oh, the rules are you can say anything? Really, just anything. I can just make up anything. And I can just say it in public, and it's a headline? All right. How about Joe Scarborough's uh, murderer? We'll see how that goes. Went pretty well. <laughs> All right, let's see if we can get Ian on the, Ian on the line. This will be a, a test of the technology. I think we got it. I think we got it. Oh, seriously? Because I know we had a Wi-Fi problem yesterday. And it looks like we got a Wi-Fi problem today. Well, whatever the problem is, doesn't look like that's going to get solved. I'll try it one more time, but then I think... We should maybe give up on this if it doesn't work this time. Ian, we'll try you one more time. Ian? Hey, let's make this work. This is the first time the technology has worked more than five seconds, so I feel good about it. That's a good sign. All right, good, strong signal. All right, Ian, uh, first of all, let me see if I can pronounce your name correctly. Ian Hilgart Martizas. Pretty close? Yes. Yes, you nailed All right. it. All right. Can you tell the audience uh, what your background is and how that relates specifically to the convalescent blood plasma testing situation? Give, give them a little background on you. Okay. So uh, my background is that I worked in bioscience for about 10 years, and then um, I ended up kind of leaving academic bioscience and taught myself to program and become a data analyst and um, started working um, in corporate uh, for a corporation as a data analyst. And when the COVID stuff started to hit, I would um, figure out ways to harvest public data to do public um, data analysis that I could publish. So to help people understand the situation a little better. And then um through that process, I uh, started to, you know, think about different w- answers that I thought we needed that um, maybe we weren't getting from the media. And um, one of the things I thought about as well is, uh, you know, what can we do now? What can we do before there's a vaccine? Because there's going to be people who can't wait that long. Um, and the development of new therapeutics, it takes so long that um, a lot of people would uh, end up dying while they wait. And so, you know, we got to figure something out in the so meantime. Tell us, so, so tell us what you did, because uh, I was I was sort of uh, following along early on, and you, and you put together your own tests, right? Well, it wasn't necessarily my own test. I bought a uh, commercially available test kit. Um, I just happened to become aware of its existence 
pretty early, I suppose. Um, and the way that I became aware of it is that I just got like a spam email because you know, when you buy something from a vendor, they put you on a mailing list and then they always blast out these, um, kind of spam advertisements. And so I got one of those that said, Oh, Hey, we have these, um, COVID-19 antibody tests. And so I thought, well, shit, I want to buy one of those. And my friend and I were just going to test ourselves. So we, so I bought one and then, um, it had space for 40 tests. And so I thought, well, I might as well just fill this whole thing up and, um, run 40 tests and kind of get a better sense of how many people are positive. Cause at the time it was unclear of how far spread the virus had been. So, so you are really, uh, I think you might've been the first person who did an, an amateur or professional test of, uh, how many people had antibodies. Do, do you know anybody tested before you did? Uh, no, um, I, as far as I know, I was the first, uh, report or I did publish the first report about, um, or on a community kind of serum survey for COVID-19 antibodies. Now, so you've been sort of paying attention to the whole serum antibody thing. And I, I know there was a, uh, there was an article in the wall street journal that said they had some small 39 people or something. And uh, how, how did that go? So yeah, are, are, are so, we positive on on this convalescent serum? I mean, the idea of taking blood from somebody who's been infected and recovered, and putting their antibodies in somebody else. Uh, what what's the state of that in terms of the, the science? I know you're surveying the field there. Yeah. So um, on Friday, I believe uh, the first convalescent serum therapy uh, clinical study was published. Um, and the authors claim it was the first in the world published, um, or at least the largest. Um, and so they did treat 39 patients, like you said, with convalescent serum therapy, um, and it was controlled. So there was a group that did not receive that uh, treatment. And there was a significant improvement in survival with the group that did receive the convalescent serum therapy. Uh, there was uh, about 12.8% um, uh, death rate for the convalescent serum therapy group, but it was 24.4% for those who didn't receive it. So that means that the serum therapy cut the death rate in half. And that was for people who were pretty close to death to begin with. And I, I think I saw in the article that they, they just assume it would work better if you had it earlier, but that hasn't been tested, I guess. And now, is there any reason to think that any of this would ever be dangerous? Does it, it doesn't um, have to go through – it wouldn't have to go uh, – I know this is sort of outside your area, but I don't think this would have to go through whole FDA, would it, the whole FDA approval? Because it's uh, – there are antibodies. Is this something we know well enough that we don't need to go through the whole testing? Well, well, it is actually FDA approved now, um, at least with an emergency use authorization uh, so that was one of the first things that became approved as a treatment for COVID-19 because it is generally safe. There's a couple different things people generally test for, like ABO blood typing. You want to match the donor and recipient and then RH factors. But other than that, it appears to be safe. So if well, what would happen if you didn't match? Would it hurt you or would it just not help you? Suppose you had the wrong blood type match. Yeah, it could it could definitely hurt you um, down the road. I'm not 
you know, it has been done without ABO blood type matching. Um, in fact, when it was first used or the reports I've seen when it was first used are from the early 1900s and they were not doing ABO blood type matching at that time, but all those reports showed significant um, improvement. Well, well, if you had to guess based on, uh, you know, isn't there, there are two other cases where they've used this convalescent blood um, serum approach, right? Was it uh, HIV was one? Um, well, the, I, was, I, I don't think it was used, or I'm not aware of it being used for HIV, um, but the uh, treatment for HIV is monoclonal antibodies, and same with Ebola. Um, and so it's similar in a way because convalescent serum therapy is use, basically using antibodies. It's more of um, a kind of... Um, gross product of antibodies where you're just taking everything under the sun that's in somebody's serum and giving it to somebody else and you're not selecting for one specific antibody. Um, but it has been used in SARS. Um, there is actually a guy who got the 1901 Nobel Prize for the development of serum therapies and he um, solved a diphtheria epidemic in Germany in the 1890s. Uh, by using serum therapies, and that's kind of where it started. And so he's the pioneer in the field. His name's uh, Emil von Behring. Now, do you do you know uh, what it would take to scale this up? Let, let's say that uh, in a few weeks we said, yes, this is the thing. We need more of this. Um, given that you have to actually take it from people, unless you're using machines to clone it, I guess, how, how quickly can I know you did some calculations on how quickly you could scale up? Like what what would you guess? I know this is an unfair question off the top of your head, but let's say if we were to say start today and said, all right, we want to get everybody convalescent blood serum therapy. Uh, like how close are we to being able to do that? Is that something that scales up very well? Um, I think that it is generally reserved for the people that are in poor condition, you know, in the hospital. So not everybody is going to need it. But for those people, it would be possible. Uh, it is obviously going to be dependent on your area. New York got hit so hard that I, I don't know if they would have been able to keep up with demand. Um, but Generally speaking, you have about 5% of cases who end up in the ICU, and those are the people that would be um, candidates to receive the therapy. Would they really? Because why wouldn't you give it to people even before they had it so that they, if they did get it, it they could handle it more easily? Uh, just because of scalability, it is tough. You need to do um, plasma paresis to get the uh, plasma from donors. You also have to be checking people ahead of time to make sure that they actually have an antibody response against the virus. Let, let, let me ask you some sort of detailed questions. If you're going to draw blood from one person and turn that one person's blood into antibodies, how long would the whole process take from putting the needle in to draw the blood to to having it in your hand and, and, and ready to give somebody else? Um, I think that you can do plasmapheresis um, in a couple of hours. It depends on, obviously, how much you're trying to harvest. The amount that the FDA allows, I believe, for a donation is a liter per week or two liters every two weeks. 
Um, and then in the uh, study that you're ta- you were talking about, they used about 500 milliliters, which is a half a liter per patient. So it looks like a, well, a donor could donate. Go ahead. Yeah. It, to, to simplify that, each donor giving one donation could handle how many people? Four. It looks like if over a two-week donation period or – to how for one one donation, if I donate blood once, how many people would that handle? Two. So Two. It's, that's kind of hard to scale, isn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. And so that's why I say it should be reserved for only the people that are in poor condition or in the now, hospital. Now, have you looked into the uh, – I don't understand the, uh, the differences or the, the nuances of monoclonal – where you're just taking, you know, the best antibodies you can get <clears throat> from one real person, and then you're cloning it with machines to scale it up. It, is is there a uh, limit to how quickly you can do that if you just keep building machines? I mean, could could we do a ventilator type thing where we just say, all right, everybody's building monoclonal uh, devices? Have you looked into those? Do you do you do you know if yeah, yeah, that's so- a path or not? Yeah, those are um, the first therapies that will come online for COVID-19 is the monoclonal antibody therapies. It takes a little bit of time to develop because of uh, the process. You build what are called hybridomas, and that's a fusion between a cancer cell and an antibody-creating cell. And um, the cancer cell makes it immortal, and then the antibody-secreting um, cell uh, is fused, and it starts just producing antibodies in mass, and then you can create a ton of those cells. They're all identical and make a bunch of antibodies in a bioreactor. And um, that's being done now. It just takes a little bit of time to identify the specific um, antibody secreting cell that you want to use that's making good antibodies. Now, once you've identified the antibodies, isn't it just a question of making more of those machines and, and more of those facilities? Couldn't, couldn't you just keep scaling it up indefinitely? Correct. Yeah, you could, um, especially if, you know, you, somebody identified a good um, antibody secreting cell and then um, made the hybrid domas. And if they were to share those with other people and kind of uh, decentralize the production um, and make it uh, scale faster. That would maybe be a good way to do it. There's also, you know, you Dude. should be probably combining a lot of different hybridomas to get good coverage for your antibodies. Make sure that there, uh, there's a good, strong protection there. Uh, uh, do you, have you heard? I haven't seen any news coverage of the monoclonal anything. Is it, do, you, do you know if anybody's getting any traction actually doing that? I haven't seen anything um, that's become available yet with those. Uh, I've seen some anecdotal reports about strong protection. There, I think last week there was a report from a company that said they had a good candidate, but um, you know it's still a little early. And the other thing is that uh, there's a difference between having an antibody that you can see recognizes COVID-19 and then also – whether that antibody neutralizes the virus. So um, I've actually seen some evidence in my hands where somebody can test positive for antibodies that recognize the virus, but those antibodies don't necessarily neutralize the virus. And then conversely, somebody could have uh, a low level of antibodies that 
you know, recognize the virus, but those antibodies are very strong at neutralizing. So there is nuance there. So and do we have any more visibility on how long antibodies would last? Let's say you got them either naturally by having it and recovering or you got it from, uh, from the plasma from somebody else. Do you know, is there any difference in how long they would last? You know, that that's a good question. I don't um, – you might expect there to be a shorter window for um, donor antibodies because they might have – start to get marked as non-self by your immune system and then kind of removed. But um, it's a tough thing to study because, you know, you start to get this mix of potentially like antibodies made by yourself and antibodies from the the donor. And how do you differentiate which one came from which? Um, But uh, I think generally like two years is what a lot of people Say, if you look at data from the original SARS um, patients, uh, two years of protection is what people were getting at least. Some at least, some got protection out to 17 years, though. Now, would, would you say that it comes down to uh, literally just how fast we can make this stuff? I mean, the, that's really the gating factor, right? Because at this point, we kind of know it's safe and we kind of know it works or all common sense says it works, right? I mean, it would be hard to imagine it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely works. And um, one of the limitations is just getting access to the uh, people who are producing those antibodies so that then you can kind of identify those antibody secreting cells and scale this. So I would encourage anybody that's ever had it and recovered to look into getting tested for antibodies and look into donating their serum for convalescent serum therapy because um, every you could donate every week or every couple weeks and that serum can be banked for the future where um, maybe in the fall we have a second wave or something. So I think right. we should be stockpiling serum now um, in anticipation for the fall and winter time. Interesting. So there's there's an idea I had never heard before, which is we have all these strategic stockpiles of everything from oil to PPE and ventilators. Uh, it would make perfect sense to have a national stack stockpile temporarily. I don't know how long you can store this stuff, but it would, that makes perfect sense to have a national stockpile of convalescent serum. That's actually a great idea. I hope somebody's watching this who can do something about that. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and that like I said, requires people who have had it to get tested for the antibodies and be kind of active participants. I think that um, a lot of people are looking for something that they can do to help nowadays. And that's one pretty easy way to do it. And, you know, I, I think that those people should get paid to donate their serum. A lot of them have probably accrued pretty significant hospital bills along the way. And this would be a way to offset those bills for them and, Oh yeah! Oh, now you're now you're. In, this is interesting. So you're talking about how this might be a money making thing. Um, do you, are you aware of anybody who's ever charged for their antibodies for any kind of situation? Has that ever happened? I'm not aware of a specific instance where somebody's donated their antibodies because they just had the um, greatest antibodies out there. But you know, there's plasma donation centers 
all across the country. Um, I don't know the name of one offhand, but I know there's national chains of plasma donation centers, and um, they pay people. This is very interesting because, you know, um, I, I think that the patriotic mood in the country at the moment is so high that you could get all the, all the blood you wanted. But basically, if the, if the president of the United States said, here's the deal, if you've tested positive, I need you to do this. Go in and offer your blood. We're going to try to see how much we can get. I believe that patriotism alone would give you all the blood you wanted. But if you really wanted to take it to the next level, uh, people are people. And if you could offer more money to, let's say, go in a second time or a third or a fourth time, as you were suggesting, I would imagine that a monetary incentive would probably have a uh, gigantic uh, yeah, I mean, I like yeah, that as and, well. Yeah, and I, I've talked to some people about, you know, the monetary incentive and people get a little bit uneasy sometimes about that. But my perspective is that, you know, it's going to be administered in the hospital. And is the hospital making money? Yeah. So why shouldn't the donor? Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, so we've got safety. It's really just a, a production problem, uh, it seems to me. And. Uh, it's almost like, gosh, it, it feels like this is it's such a big deal. You know, every, the the biggest deal, of course, is wearing masks. But I would think that the second most promising thing, you know, if we have to wait for vaccines for months and months, but the things that we can do now, the second most promising thing is probably this, wouldn't you say? Yeah, in terms of things that we know that work and not having to wait around for something that, you know, may never actually happen, right? We There's no guarantee that we'll have a vaccine or anything like that, but we know this works. And um, so, you know, why not embrace it while we also pursue other avenues to solve the problem? Um, so, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to point out, so I started a company that we're going to be doing antibody testing as well. And I'm specifically doing a neutralization tests, which means um, we're not just testing for the presence of antibody. We're testing to see whether your antibodies neutralize the virus. And um, we plan to take that data and kind of publish it on, publish the de-identify data on open source dashboards for anybody to check out just so everybody can get a general sense of where uh, their community is in terms of um, relative protection. And then uh, I plan on uh, creating an avenue for people who test positive for neutralizing antibodies to um, be sent information on how to donate their plasma, right? So we'll be identifying those candidates. And so then they should be told, you know, here's what you can do if you're interested um, in helping other people with your um, unique situation or unique set of antibodies. So uh, Ian, uh, I've been watching the comments and I just, I just want to call out something that uh, you know, I always talk about winning attitudes and, and losing attitudes. And I'm watching a lot of losing attitudes in the, in the comments, specific, specifically people who don't quite appreciate, and I'm going to make them appreciate it now, uh, the power of your talent stack, because people are sort of saying, oh, data analyst, what's that got to do with this? But the whole point is that you knew how to draw blood, you knew how to get uh, these tests, you've got, what did you say your background was, biological what? Bio bioscience. Yeah, so he's got a bioscience background. 
So he basically compiled a whole bunch of skills together, including starting a new business initiative to try to help with the coronavirus. So would you see uh, Ian jumping in? And I, I was watching this from the beginning. And on day one, Ian was saying, all right, I have this set of talents. How can I help in this coronavirus thing? And then I've been watching as you've, you've, you've grabbed, you know, like one piece, of, one piece of it at a time and tried to assemble it into something that would be bigger than the parts. And I've, I've, been, I've been completely impressed, not only at the early data visualization stuff you were doing, because initially you were doing data visualization, some of the best ones I'd seen on the Internet, and then you found that your talent stack could get you all the way to here, and next thing you know, there, you know, it could be a, a, you know, one of the pivotal, at least informational parts of what would be the second most important thing we do after masks. So I'm very impressed at what you've done. And uh, for those who are maybe don't have the winning mindset, what the hell did you guys do? Let, let me just say that while you're on the line, Ian. Limit to your mm -hmm. critics, because you know there's always going to be somebody on here. Blah blah. I hear mm -hmm. this all the time. You know, hey, you're a cartoonist. Why you're doing this? Blah blah blah. But all of those people, you're not very successful. I'll bet, because if you're worried about staying in your lane, and you're worried that people only have one talent, Ian's got more than one talent. Sorry, if you only have one talent, maybe you don't understand how that works. But if you put enough talents together, you have a superpower. And I think this is a perfect example of it. So, Ian, thank you for being a, a patriot. Uh, and I mean that, seriously. Because in, in times of crisis, not everybody runs toward the fire. And you did. You know, on day one, you were running toward the emergency. You know, what can I do? And we need more of you and less of the people who are, who are nitpicking on here. I really appreciate that, Scott. And I just want to point out before I go um, that I can't do it all by myself. I have a lot of help um, from Mikhail Stadden and Brianna Knight. They've been helping me get Cure Hub going. And, you know, it, everything's, you know, about being on a team and winning team. And um, you're, we're all in this together. And uh, no one person can make anything work. And I think it's uh, – you got to treat life like a positive sum game, and then um, you'll start to find success uh, all over the place. Well, that, that's um, that's America in a in, in a nutshell, right there. So, thank you so much. Uh, do you want to uh, name a uh, URL that you want people to look at? Yeah, you can go to cure-hub.com, um, and we have a system in place where you can sign up and get reserve your spot in line to get antibody tested. Um, and then you, you don't pay anything, but um, you'll get on our mailing list. And then as soon as we have the antibody tests approved, um, which should be a couple weeks, then we'll uh, let you know. And then you can join the study and, um, you know, donate a sample to get tested. We'll test you. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's all right. So thank, thank you again. Thanks for being a great guest. Uh, I'm going to go on with the rest of my program, and I'll catch up with you. Hey, can so, I do one thing? I missed the sure. simultaneous sip. Can I get another one live? I got to do it. <laughs> All right. I, I will give you the, the first ever uh, second simultaneous sip. And all you need is a cup of margarita glasses, handkerchief, a canteen jug, a flask, a vessel of any kind. You ready? Cheers. Cheers.
the second Great. simultaneous sip, even better than the first. All right, thanks, Ian. Thank you. Bye. All right, All right. so, you know, I, as much as the, the topic is interesting, because I, in my opinion, it's probably the most important topic besides masks, but um, I also wanted you to get get a feel for Ian. You know, just, just get a feel for what your fellow citizens, if you're American, and I'm sure it's happening in every country around the world, people are just jumping into the breach. I mean, people are running toward this thing like crazy. You know, when this is over, when this is over, you're going to be really proud that you were a human because <laughs> humans are pretty awesome. And, uh, and, and humans have done remarkable things in the past several months and there's a lot more to come. So, you know, we're, we're all lost in the details and just trying to get through life and, you know, make it to the next uh, time you can buy groceries. And I, and I know that that's got to be the focus, but when this is done, when this is done, there are going to be some real, real things to be proud about. All right. Let's talk about some other things. Uh, I got a suggestion on the locals platform where I've moved a lot of my non Dilbert stuff uh, from uh, Ann Holt. I don't know. That's one name. Ann Holt. A-N-H-O-L-T. Anyway, I don't know his real name. But he started uh, referring to people who watch CNN and MSNBC as the poorly educated. <laughs> How much do you love that? So I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt that uh, that concept. So instead of what I be what I used to be saying was you know it's two movies on one screen and some people are siloed in their in their news and they don't see the news from the other side. And I used to sort of describe it as, you know, in engineering terms, but I thought this is so much more powerful. Just say, oh, you only watch these networks? Oh, you're among the poorly educated. Because it's literally true. Literally poorly educated. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious because you know how much they're going to hate that. Um, So apparently... In the in the polls, including a Fox News poll, uh, Biden is ahead of Trump by way more than even Hillary was ahead of Trump at the same time. So apparently, Biden is doing great by staying out of public and just gaffing himself and decomposing in his basement. Now, I don't know what could be more ridiculous or more funny than the fact that. Joe Biden is in his basement, literally just you know de- decomposing, uh, and he and he's, he's doing great. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> no, uh, uh, honestly, are you ever just at home and you just start laughing about the whole Joe Biden in the basement situation? Because you know the the Biden in the basement thing sort of crept up on us, right? Like, it was like, hey, I think there's this virus in Wuhan. All right. You know, and, you, you, and like, it looks like it might be coming this way. All right. And maybe we should, you know, stay away from public a little bit. And the next thing you know, a major candidate for president is living in his basement and babbling nonsense. And, be, and because we sort of got there gradually, we've sort of accepted it. <laughs> Come 
on. Are you are you sure? <clears throat> Can you tell me that you've never just you were just sitting there by yourself, and suddenly you just sort of realize the situation we're in with Joe Biden decomposing in his basement and leading leading in the polls to be the next president of the United States, <laughs> and have his fingers on the nuclear on the nuclear button. If that's not funny to you, I don't know what is. But here's the thing that's funniest. I'm not positive. So, you know, you can't, you know, don't hold me to this later. I'm not positive, but I think, I just think, we might be witnessing the greatest practical joke of all time. And what I mean by the greatest practical joke is, I think, I can't prove this, I think conservatives are massively lying to pollsters <laughs> because it's funny, right? Do you t- tell me I'm wrong. Don't you, don't you sort of suspect, because if you were saying to yourself, okay, I, I get that President Trump's not popular and you know, all the Democrats are going to vote for whoever the Democrat is. Yeah, you know, I, I get that. You know, that's going to explain most of of, of what you see, right? But <laughs> the the fact that Biden's down there decomposing and leading the polls strongly suggests it strongly suggests that what we're seeing is a really large national scale practical joke. Because if the if the polls still say Biden by eight points, and then uh, Trump wins by eight points, it's going to be the greatest troll of all time. Honestly, it will be it will be the most epic practical joke ever played in the history of practical jokes, and I think that's what's happening. Am I wrong? Am I completely off base? Because I'm seeing a lot of people in the comments who are saying, oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think the Republicans are just lying to the pollsters because it's funny. <laughs> All right, speaking of funny pranks, Alyssa Milano got photographed wearing a crochet uh, mask. And you can imagine how the Internet reacted to her crochet mask. They, of course, said, hey, there are holes in your crochet. Therefore, you fool, you idiot, you dumb Democrat, you Biden-supporting fool, you fool. How could you wear a crochet mask? And worse yet, if you're going to wear a crochet mask, don't get your photograph taken if you're famous. And so, of course, Twitter went on fire. It's like, ah, it doesn't know anything, you idiot, your crochet mask. Ah. And then Alyssa Milano waited. Wait. Hold. 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 And then Alyssa Milano tweets to one of her uh, critics, carbon filter inside, love. It was a trap. It was a trap. Do you think she knew that people were going to get on her about her uh, crochet mask, which she says, and, you know, I think it's probably true. She says as a carbon filter on the inside, it probably does. 
probably does. Because if you've got those good N95 masks, they're the ugliest of the masks. So if she figured out a way to put a, you know, a more pleasant cover over the ugliest mask, which is also the best kind of mask, maybe. Maybe. I don't know if it was an N95, but she said a carbon filter, so maybe that's good too. All right. Um, if you're not watching... I've said this a million times, but if you're not following Mike Cernovich on Twitter, you're, you're missing one of the best shows. It's like it's like a, a TV show that just goes on all the time. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. Like every time I, every time I get on Twitter and I'll see like five Cernovich quotes and every one of them makes you stop and go, huh. <laughs> but this one, <laughs> if you want to understand how to operate on the next level, this this tweet from Cernovich has made me laugh for two days. This is the whole tweet. He goes, self-confidence triggers mediocre men. <laughs> now, of course, the beauty of it is that you can't complain about it <laughs> without being labeled a mediocre man. So it's like this perfect little trap. It's like, I want to complain about that. Because I'm really mad about your self-confidence, <laughs> Mike Cernovich. But if I do complain about it, does that make me a mediocre man? <laughs> so, it, it, uh, watching Cernovich uh, build these little Twitter traps for mediocre men is one of the funniest things I've seen on the internet. <laughs> uh, telehealth has taken off. I said this before, but there's even more signs of it. Have you seen all the commercials? Telehealth is basically just huge. Now, we thought that might happen, but apparently it is happening. The The lasting benefit we're going to get from telehealth is going to be gigantic. And the ability to you know practice across state lines, which I think will become permanent, uh, would be huge. And again, thank you to all of you who, who helped make that happen. So that's just, I'm just checking in on that because it's such a big topic. And it's going the right direction. It's always it's always good to hear some good news. All right, what else we got going here? There there's some kind of drug called ivermectin that's getting some good reviews, um, and I, I guess it it can interact with other medications and has some side effects and stuff. But there were some initial trials that you know sort of look good. So ivermectin. There's another one. I think that in the next over the next few weeks, you're just going to hear one therapeutic after another, and it's just going to be all positive news. Now, if you've done the math, I did this uh, last night in Periscope. I was talking about all the things which have cut the risk down. So masks are supposed to be 75% effective. Distance, of course, is completely effective. You know, maybe vitamin D, maybe summer will make a difference in the warm weather. You know, maybe what we've learned about nursing homes and how to protect them, maybe what we've learned about ventilator use, not to kill people with ventilators. If you if you take each, each of these many pieces of good news, each of them individually reduces risk by some percentage, from 75% with masks down to maybe vitamin D makes a difference, or maybe it's just correlation. We don't know if it's causation yet. But maybe hydroxychloroquine and zinc, if you get them early, is 20% benefit. Maybe there's some people we can get with this convalescent blood serum. So we now have 
uh, off the top of my head, maybe 10 to 12 different things we've either developed as a tool or learned, which also allows us to reduce risk. I feel like we have all the tools to, within a few weeks, we're going to have the risk down to, uh, it's going to approach zero. I mean, it's, it's almost going to disappear, I think. Uh, monoclonal antibody is almost ready, somebody says. Yeah, and that could be huge. The monoclonal antibodies just could be huge. All right. Um, and then somebody says, Primar primarily immune system strength. Let me ask you this. I, I want to see this in the comments. Uh, when, when this whole thing started, I was advising everybody to just make sure they took care of their immune system. So in other words, you know, get out, get a little light exercise, get some sun, get some sleep, eat right, you know, all, all the usual things. How many of you have done that? How many of you, in the comments, it'll take a little time lag here, but in the comments, tell me if you feel that you've done something that would boost your immune system. Have you, have you intentionally boosted your immune system? Look at all the yeses. Uh, wow. Almost every person, every, uh, so far, every person who's answering is saying yes. Think about that. What what kind of what kind of change does that make in your life and in civilization if suddenly 370 million people just decided to get serious about boosting their their immunity and their health? Oh my God, I am so impressed. Are, uh, for those of you who are listening to this. It is a non-broken string of yeses. I've never seen so much agreement. Somebody lost 20 pounds. Uh, bicycle riding outdoors, yes, definitely. Yes, yes, yes. See, yes. Immune system way up, yes. Oh, my goodness. I am so, so impressed. Very impressed. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, are you as impressed as I am? Take Take a look at these uh, comments going by. They're still absolutely solidly yes. Holy cow. This is one of the, this is the most underreported under story of the year. Isn't it? Wouldn't you say this is the most underreported story? If, if we had not had a coronavirus and suddenly you found that 370 million Americans, and I'm guessing other countries are doing something similar, if you found that you know, hundreds of millions of people suddenly took seriously their health. What did we just do to the entire healthcare cost of this country? How much of this is going to become habit? And, and I'm wondering if you think that you'll be able to turn this into habit. The trouble is, you know, a lot of us are not going to work in the normal ways. We don't have the normal schedule. So it's going to be harder when you're trying to work it in with your normal schedule. But, wow, I am so impressed with all of you. Genuinely, ge somebody stopped smoking. Congratulations. Congratulations on stopping smoking. That is hard. Um, all right. So, well, that might be the good news for this. Maybe our uh, health care costs just took a 20% hit simply because we're, we're in better shape and we know how to do this. So, uh where can you outdoor shoot? I don't understand that question. All right. Well, uh, I'm impressed with you all, and I'm going to leave you on that note. Hope you learned something today, 
and I'll talk to you tonight.